Hello everybody, thanks for joining. It's Martin Kiernan here and today we're going to cover a topic we've not actually gone anywhere near during the year that Infection Control Mantis has been running, which has shocked me a bit to be honest when I think about it. We're going to be talking about C. diff and I'm going to call it C. diff because I'll keep slipping into Clostridium difficile, not Clostridioides, because old dogs can't learn new tricks. Uh, and I'm delighted to say uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. David Weber from University of North Carolina, is able to join us. He, he's Professor of Medicine, Pediatrics and Epidemiology, Medical Director at UNC Hospitals, Departments of Hospital Epidemiology, and as everybody knows, a long history in you know, environmental-related issues as well as occupational health, actually, issues. Um, and his group have been doing some publications related to C. diff over the last year when I haven't seen too much in the way of new information. So we're going to have a chat about those. So, David, thank you so much for joining me. It's really kind of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be here, and thank you for inviting me. Both the papers we're going to talk about, and I'll put a link in the uh, description of the podcast, are relating to reducing environmental contamination from patients who have C. diff. And the first one I want to discuss really is the uh, use of antibiotics to actually, you know, the effect of antibiotic use on um, environmental contamination. So could you have a, give me a brief overview of that paper, please? Certainly. Let me start off with saying, of course, in the United States and many developed countries, uh, C. difficile is a, a major cause, the major cause of hospital-acquired diarrhea, uh, particularly in older individuals or those with underlying comorbidities that can cause severe disease, including uh, what's called toxic metagocolon, sepsis, and even death. Uh, and it is quite a disabling uh, disease. Uh, we do know that it is transferred in the hospital through the environment. That's best shown uh, by studies that demonstrate that that a, uh, when a patient leaves the room who had C. difficile colitis, the incoming patient has a higher risk of acquiring C. difficile, and that's because of lack of complete uh, disinfection of the environment. In this particular study, uh, we looked at uh, 94 patients uh, between uh, uh, 2019 and 2021 who had uh, C. difficile. We did a trial looking how they shed uh, C. difficile into the environment based on the therapy they received. And at the time we uh, did this study, uh, there were three recommended therapies. Uh, one was uh, fidaxomycin, oral fidaxomycin, second was oral vancomycin, and the uh, third was oral metronidazole. I'm sorry, I got it was actually 33 patients in this study. And then we looked mm -hmm. at did any of these different therapies affect the shedding into the environment? And what we actually showed was, yes, uh, that fidoxomycin uh, uh, and vancomycin reduce shedding more than metronidazole, which led to the uh, most common uh, shedding in the environment. And that among the two other therapies, fidoxomycin and vancomycin, fidoxomycin led to actually less uh, uh, shedding than vancomycin. So the progression was in terms of shedding metronidazole uh, with the most shedding, then vancomycin, and least uh, with fidexamycin. And this, to my knowledge, is the uh, most complete study and best designed study, and that was actually a randomized trial study uh, that demonstrates that therapy uh, for C. difficile does impact on the amount of shedding into the environment and therefore likely impacts on the likelihood of transmission from patient to patient through a contaminated environment. Hmm. I mean, the fidexamycin, certainly over here in the UK, would generally be used for relapse patients rather than for primary treatment would that be the same in the states and do you think there would that affect the amount of shedding going on if it's from somebody who's continually relapsing rather than primary cases 
So up until recently, uh, the uh, two drugs uh, were similarly advised by uh, the guidelines committee, such as the Infectious Disease Society of America uh, and the Gastrointestinal Society. But in the most recent guidelines published in the last two years, uh, there's been a renewed emphasis on uh, fidoxamycin. Uh, mm-hmm. They have similar effects on the initial cure rate, uh, but fidoxamycin has a lower risk for recurrence. And there have now been uh, several uh, studies looking at cost-benefit analysis, and uh, it does appear that fidoxamycin is cost-beneficial in these cases. So the current guidelines, while permissive to using vancomycin, do uh, express a preference for fidoxamycin in the U.S. I mean, what what are you attributing this to? Because I'm wondering, does it actually reduce the amount of spores being released or does it reduce the number of symptoms you know and so that you know people get better quicker or their episodes of diarrhea reduce in numbers any ideas on that one so we actually didn't monitor uh, the actual entire numbers of, uh, of uh, loose stools uh, uh, per day. But I would say fidoxamycin does uh, uh, appear, in part maybe reason that it has reduced risk of recurrence. It actually was associated with a more rapid uh, decline in environmental contamination because we measure the environmental contamination uh, over several days uh, uh, in the hospital. So not only overall is there less contamination, there's a more rapid decline in the contamination suggesting that it is a more effective, more rapid therapy uh, for reducing uh, C. difficile. Mm, okay, that's interesting. I mean, the problem is you'd probably, it'd be quite difficult to actually determine how many episodes somebody's having because people can have multiple episodes before a nurse finds them, so you don't know how many episodes is going on. And I'm afraid nurse documentation isn't always the best anyway, so you don't always get absolutely every episode documented. So it would be quite difficult to design or challenging, should we say, to design a study to actually determine exactly um, how many how many episodes somebody's having. And, and almost sometimes I, I do wonder about the violence of the episode as well, because some people are relatively continent and can make it to a toilet-type facility and others are not continent at all, and presumably that you think that would lead to a lot more environmental contamination than somebody who's relatively contained. We do know that uh, patients who have a profuse diarrhea are more likely to contaminate the environment and in higher mm-hmm. concentrations. As you point out, there are actually three variables. One would be the frequency of the loose or watery stool. The second likely would be the volume of the loose and watery stool. And one would propose, I would, that the larger the volume, the more likely the environmental contamination. And then finally, potentially most important, at least for the immediate environment, meaning the bed and bed rails, would be that the patient's incontinent that is not able to make it to the bathroom so short of putting a camera on the patient and measuring every single (laughs) stool it really would be hard to disentangle uh, all of uh, those issues plus of course the uh, duration that is how many days the diarrhea persists would also have some impact on the environment and transmission sure i mean actually you 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 mentioned in your uh, discussion at the beginning that we know that there is a risk to next occupants of the room but actually i saw a very good abstract at the shea spring meeting where they'd actually tagged beds and were able to track the beds around the hospital so because the beds don't always stay in the same room and stamped demonstrated the risk of transmission for up to 90 days if the previous occupant was actually in that particular bed not necessarily in that room and i thought that was really quite interesting because we tend to think of a room but actually forget that much of the equipment within the room is actually quite fluid and does move around our organizations doesn't it 
Yes, uh, certainly uh, shared medical equipment uh, would be a major issue uh, for this. I don't think so much the IV pole, but they could have contamination on that as well. But the beds, the other one, of course, would be wheelchairs, and patients are always being wheeled out of their room for yeah. you know, x-ray procedures, surgery, other procedures, and uh, so that uh, the wheelchair itself may be a risk as well, and they have been shown to be uh, contaminated with uh, fecal uh, organisms uh, such as uh, C. difficile and VRE as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we actually found a fair discussion about airborne dispersal uh, because often you see in s- sampling uh, for C. diff, you find the, the spores in places that they wouldn't be able to get to through touch. So what, what's your feeling about airborne dispersal from symptomatic patients? It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest that uh, airborne dispersal, it's not that you're inhaling it, but dispersing it through mm. the air onto the environmental surfaces uh, mm. would be important, much like uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Again, you uh, in this case, uh, you uh, would uh, cough it out, but then it's going to end up settling. And we do know, yeah. for instance, if you look at uh, group A strep outbreaks uh, in operating rooms uh, where healthcare providers uh, pass group A strep to patients, uh, that uh, even rectal colonization of group A strep can lead to uh, airborne dispersal and, mm. and infection. Yeah. So it would not surprise me at all. Right. So moving on to the second paper, which I thought also was interesting, because I've often had this discussion with colleagues about the risks from symptomatic patients and the risks from asymptomatic patients. And, and you've just published on that one as well, haven't they, your, your group? So what are the, the study and how did you go about that? And what are the findings from that one? So this was a study, again, uh, about approximately 100 patients uh, just in the last uh, few years. And what we did is we uh, looked at the patients who had uh, uh, all these patients, uh, the majority of these patients, of course, symptomatic and even asymptomatic, uh, or at least without, uh, uh, with colonization, uh, did have diarrhea. Uh, but we, uh, def- we, uh, we looked by testing people uh, 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 with a PCR and a uh, EIA for toxin. So if you were PCR, PCR and toxin positive, we call that infection. If you were mm-hmm. PCR positive but EI negative, uh, meaning you had the organisms but you didn't uh, demonstrate toxin in the stool, those we called colonized. And then we had the controls who were negative on, on both. And what we demonstrated, to me, there were really two key findings. Uh, one was that the uh, uh, symptomatic uh, infected patients were uh, 62% of their environmental surfaces were contaminated. Uh, in terms of the uh, patients who were just colonized, 40% of their surfaces in those rooms were uh, colonized. And in the control patients, actually 15% of their surfaces <laughs> were colonized, which clearly reflects a poor, not incomplete uh, uh, disinfection practices. And uh, both of those, the uh, infected and colonized patients were statistically higher than the controls, but really there wasn't a difference between the uh, other two groups statistically, although the numbers uh, uh, speak for themselves. In addition to the frequency being uh, higher, the actual levels, we actually quantitatively measured the levels, were higher, as you'd expect, in the order of infected, over-compromised, over-uninfected uh, uh, patients. Uh, but the levels were still substantial. And the second finding was the bathroom was the overwhelmingly the most common uh, site for high, both frequency and high levels of 
decontamination, emphasizing that uh, if we are going to disinfect the environment, we really do need to focus on the on the bathroom. Uh, the other yeah. level patient areas we did are the immediate patient area, uh, like the bed rails and other parts of the room that were more remote. Not surprising, the area closest to the patient was more contaminated than the area somewhat more remote. But the bathroom had the highest levels. Now, for the future, the questions really are, and these are big questions, one, should we test patients uh, for uh, colonization, particularly high-risk groups? In my hospital, and we've not published this, uh, we found that 15% of the patients being admitted to our bone marrow unit without any diarrhea, without any symptoms, are in fact uh, colonized uh, with uh, C. difficile. Uh, so first of all, should you test them? And if you test them, what should you do about that? So one option, of course, would be for colonized patients to put them on contact isolation, uh, such as we do for infected patients. Uh, the second uh, option would be, uh, should we try and prophylactically treat them? There's at least one paper uh, in the literature prophylactically treating them with oral vancomycin uh, and showing a reduced risk of subsequent uh, uh, C. difficile. Again, this is all preliminary. None of this is in guidelines yet. Uh, and of course, we could in those patients, which know, but we have one monoclonal antibody, bezlotuximab, that's been shown to prevent a uh, reduce the risk of a recovery but has never been well tested to as primary prevention in a high-risk group. It is uh, uh, moderately expensive, but again, testing in a very high-risk group like bone marrow patients might be reasonable. So these are all for the future. None of those are in guidelines, but clearly something that we need to think about uh, uh, in the future. And then finally, I would say in terms of uh, disinfection, given the numbers I just reported, one could make an argument that for colonized patients, we should uh, disinfect their rooms with a sporocidal agent, and one could even make a further argument based on finding C. difficile spores in 15% of control rooms that we should move to uh, sporocidal agents that cover C. difficile throughout the hospital, not just for known uh, infected C. difficile patients. Again, things for the future in terms of additional research needed before we change the guidelines. Yeah. I mean, the um, I was interested in the the non-colonized or infected patients 15 percent were there any key areas that were clearly being missed in the majority of cases when from the original decontamination do you think that could target better practice yes uh, for all three including the uh patients who were the controls uh, what's the bathroom that clearly was the site uh, the toilet seat uh, the toilet handle the area the, the the floor in the in the bathroom of course, uh, many we many of us uh, use ultraviolet light to disinfect rooms of patients with C. difficile and other multidrug resistant organisms. Uh, C. difficile or uh, ultraviolet light only works with direct and to some extent indirect line of sight. So you would not actually cover the bathroom unless you, if it's off to a side, uh, unless you wheeled the uh, ultraviolet light device into that room and separately disinfected the bathroom. So that may be one take home message that when you're using ultraviolet uh, uh, light uh, that you do need to do both the room of C. difficile as well as separately uh, do the appropriate run in the bathroom. If you're using some type of uh, vaporized hydrogen peroxide, and there are several different uh, devices on the market, obviously you'd have to leave the door to the bathroom open, uh, but you wouldn't actually have to move the device uh, to achieve uh, appropriate uh, disinfection. Mm. Uh, just on the question of UV then often the machines are quite stand upright and they'll do vertical surfaces very well um, do we know that they actually will 
disinfect the floor effectively as the machine is pretty upright and there may be some shattering from the from the base of the device and the, around the wheels area do you, you know because that would be that would presumably impact things in the bathroom so we have studied that uh, over the years, uh, as has uh, a colleague of ours, Kurt Donsky. And the answer is, it, yes, if you run the machine long enough, uh, some of the machines actually have sensors in them that uh, pick up the amount of energy dispersed, uh, and uh, they can measure the uh, uh, shadow back of or the uh, uh, of the flow of the energy, and they would stay on until even the darkest areas of the room uh, are uh, are covered. So yes, there may be areas, you know, uh, completely under the bed, for instance, or directly under the large stand-up device you'd miss. But you'd catch almost all the areas by leaving the machine on a sufficient amount of time. And indirect uh, uh, activity is uh, less rapid, but ultimately, if the machine has enough energy and stays on long enough, it would get disinfected. In addition, mm -hmm. we actually studied by the way uv reflective paint in the rooms the average room is only about three percent uv reflective uh, paint uh, but you can put a uv reflective paint uh, in the rooms and substantially increase uh, the uh, indirect effects of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, uv energy in our hands that uh, we we determined that that uv paint would be about a hundred dollars uh, a room to paint and of course you'd only uh, have to paint uh, periodically whenever you repaint the rooms every several years so that might be a cost-effective way of improving de decreasing the shadow area although i'm not to my knowledge has anyone actually uh, uh have done that uh, we actually picked that up uh, we had uh, this is a nano developed reflective paint but we got the idea because uh, uh, ducks when you uh, go out with duck decoys for uh, ducks are <laughs> painted with UV reflective uh, uh, color colorings uh, because apparently ducks see into the UV range. So uh, uh, that's how the paint was originally uh, developed. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, actually, at $100, if you were able to shorten the amount of time that you, the, the device would have to be in the room, because you generally would double the amount of time for spores for vegetative bacteria, you'd actually increase your turnaround time, wouldn't you? And this, if you're in a time-constrained organisation, it would make more efficient use of environmental service workers because they maybe would take less time to do the decontamination procedure. As I remember our, our study, I think the uh, UV reflective paint was about 70% UV reflective in mm. terms of reflectivity, whereas the uh, standard paint was in the range of 3 to 7%, so substantially better. Yeah. I mean, you, you make a reasonable case for thinking about moving to something that does kill spores in patient areas. And and if an organization was looking for a co more cost-effective solution, maybe they might want to think about using it mainly for bathrooms then because, you know, most things, most pathogens are actually spread around in, well, or certainly contaminate bathrooms, don't they? Certainly all the uh, enterobacteria you know, see will be found in bathrooms and you'll find a number of organisms in bathrooms if you go looking uh, after decontamination does or does not take place. So that may be a relatively cost-effective solution if you can't afford to do it absolutely everywhere. And the other issue, of course, is it uh, does show that, uh, which has more of an impact on lesser developed countries, that shared bathrooms are maybe a particular concern when you have uh, multi-bed rooms or uh, uh, like holding areas, observation areas where you might have, you know, 5, 10, 15 patients behind curtains, but you may have one or two bathrooms that are shared. Uh, ideally, you would disinfect the bathroom between each patient use, although that may not be practical at all, but it does <laughs> represent a, a risk to the patients. And uh, obviously, yeah. if a patient had a known multidrug resistant pathogen, such as a CRE, you clearly would not want them in a shared bathroom. 
No, I mean, the, I mean, the issue for us in the, here in the UK is if you look at hospitals built in the 70s and 80s, which are still very much uh, a large number, you maybe have a 28-bedded ward, uh, four individual single rooms, two of which would be en suite, uh, and maybe four toilets for everybody else. So the, the chances of actually being able to decontaminate the bathroom between each patient is absolutely nil. So I, I, I do think there are opportunities there, I think, to improve our, our practice in those sort of areas. It'd be interesting to study uh, that over this side of the water and see what we found as well. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, have you got any projects ongoing at the moment then, looking at any other aspects of um, C. diff? Those were our major problems uh, with C. difficile. We do have a number of other environmental uh, studies uh, that we're doing. Probably the most interesting is we're looking at low-cost methods of uh, we are planning with uh, funding from the Centers for Disease Control, how to prevent contamination of sinks. As you know, sinks, particularly sink drains, have been linked to reservoirs for multidrug-resistant organisms and then spread to patients. And so we have a very simple intervention. Uh, one is to put a water filter on the faucet uh, to prevent contamination through the water, and water is not sterile. And the other is to put a drain cover over the sink drain. So when you turn the water faucet on, you don't get this backscatter from the drain. And we're going to do a cluster randomized uh, study uh, where we have controls, water filter only, uh, drain filter only, or both. And um, uh, a number of ICU splits between the University of North Carolina and Duke University uh, to look at whether that reduces contamination in sinks with relatively simple and low cost uh, interventions. Certainly people have come up with all sorts of ways of decontaminating uh, P-traps and sinks that involve heat and ozone and UV and many other ways, but many of those devices require substantial maintenance and are quite costly. So we decided we would study uh, lower uh, cost uh, uh, items. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you actually want the sink to become contaminated because you want staff to wash their hands and remove the pathogens that they've just been handling from the patient down the sink. It's the whole, whole sort of the point of the sink, actually. And so I think sinks are likely to become contaminated. What we have to get better at is, like you, stopping them coming back from the sink, you know, by splashing outwards. Because, you know, there are, I've seen plenty of nice little videos of two-meter splashes. And I know Amy Mather's group has shown all the amount of splashing from sinks if they're poorly designed, if faucets are poorly designed. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure we will stop a sink getting contaminated. But I think what we have to do is get better at preventing uh, contamination from the sink getting out and contaminating the envi you know, environment and getting back to people. And I, I always find it fascinating that we'll have somebody in a single room uh, with Clostridium difficile, oh, sorry, Clostridioides difficile. I'm so old school. I keep calling it C. diff. It's much easier. Um, and you know, or a multi-resistant gram-negative, and we decontaminate the room and maybe put hydrogen peroxide in the room, and or maybe put UV in the room. But what's still on the drain is still down the drain and is still going to come back out potentially if your practice isn't great. I'm, you know, if you look at the sink and what people put around the sink, you'll often find vital signs equipment, which then is going to be used on every patient because it's just a space. So I, I think there's a, a focus as well for, for some research in trying to stop people not thinking of the sink as something 
clean because we're cleaning our hands but thinking of it as the waste disposal area which is in fact what it is yeah and the other thing we uh, have recently published on i'll be happy to come back and do a podcast on that is uh, looking at environmental contamination with SARS-CoV-2 but specifically not limiting ourselves to just looking at PCR positivity which is easy but may not which does not pick up or can pick up non-viable organisms uh, but actually doing cultures uh, which does require a BSL-3 lab and correlating uh, 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 cultures with uh, uh, with PCR positivity uh, and also looking not only in patient areas in the patient room where we'd expect some contamination uh, but in common areas so I'd be happy to come back and do a podcast on that for you. I'm definitely going to take you up on that one then David thank you very much indeed okay well thanks everybody for joining us and uh, thank you David for being very generous with your time you're always generous with your time and you'll talk to anybody who's interested in infection prevention and we all really appreciate that but I want to thank you for joining us today thank you it was a great pleasure uh, always and I enjoyed it and I look forward to our next podcast so thank you very much okay thanks very much and uh, catch you everybody next time on infection control matters goodbye